Looking at your LinkedIn feed might give the impression that every organization is on the brink of launching revolutionary AI products set to disrupt industries. But what's the actual landscape like for those in that field of creating those products? How are organizations tangibly advancing? And what does the day-to-day look like for those immersed in this rapidly evolving space? In this episode, we sit down with Tim O'Neill, the co-founder of Time Under Tension. They specialize in partnering with agencies and brands to enhance customer experience through generative AI. Our conversation begins with Tim shedding light on the inception of Time Under Tension and uh, the journey that led them to where they are today. Thank you very much for having me. My background um, and that of the co-founders of the business that I run now, uh, which is called Time Under Tension, we all come from a digital agency background. So uh, we used to run a business in Australia called Reactive and Reactive really did user experience design, website design, web development, digital marketing, things like that. And we started in the very, very early days of the internet. So we started that business in, in 1997. So I'm, I'm kind of aging myself here. And we were fortunate that we started that agency business doing web kind of projects at the start of the web, you know, very, very early. And so we grew that business alongside the growth of the internet and then ended up selling that business to Accenture about eight years ago and then joined Accenture Interactive. And what was really interesting is like we're kind of seeing history repeat itself with generative AI now. A lot of people say this, but I definitely agree with it, is it feels like the early days of the internet where anything is possible, but not everything works just yet and it moves really quickly and you can you know, build products or services or, you know, there's just so much potential opportunity, which is super exciting for us. So you mentioned um, this company, Time Under Tension. When did that start and what's your offer? Myself and the uh, co-founders, Jason and Tim, uh, other Tim, we're already doing projects and, exp- and experiments in generative AI and being asked to go and speak at companies and, and uh, events about how companies would embrace generative AI. And then we're like, we're doing this for free. We should just get paid for this. So we started Time Under Tension as a consulting business or or very similar to a digital agency, really, except we're not building websites. We're not doing digital marketing. We're just 100% focused on how generative AI can be used by companies to do interesting stuff. And so what type of things are companies doing? What type of challenges are companies coming to you with? And what sort of people are you working with? Yeah, the two, sort of three main things that we're doing. One is education, or the first two really is education and training. So we're like just earlier today, I did did a one-hour presentation to a big media company. There was about 75 people on a Teams call, and I spent an hour telling them all about generative AI and how it might apply to them and the common use cases and showing them tools like the here's if you want to do copywriting, you can use this. If you want to do image generation, you can use this. Mm-hmm. And then through to some more advanced use cases. So education and training is the first thing. And then the, the second is actually building bespoke software products to meet a customer's need. And let's take a few different forms that it's kind of getting into using, standing on the shoulders of giants. So OpenAI and Microsoft and Google have built all this amazing infrastructure that we can then use to build AI, generative AI products to meet a specific need from a company and something that 
there might not be an off-the-shelf software that does exactly what they need. So, for example, an engineering client hired us to build a RFP response tool for them. And it was it's, it's a one-of-a-kind, and it's the kind of thing that's very specific to them because it meets sort of ties in with automation tools they're using and a workflow tool that they use. And the outcome is a massive productivity improvement for their RFP writing process. But we're not building in the AI per se underneath. Like we're using, in that case, we're using GPT-4 or might be 3.5 under the hood, and we're building a custom application on the top of it to meet their needs and then integrate with their systems. So that's an example of like understanding step step one, we educated them about what you can do, what it's all about. And then we ran a design workshop with them to find out like what, now that you've got your head around it, what are some things, areas in the business that you might be primed for this? And the first was RFP proposal writer and we built a proof of concept and that worked. And then we built a pilot, which is in progress now. And then today they actually just briefed us on two other projects of cool, that works. Let's, here's a different use case and two different use cases. And one of those is not something that we would need to build. It's actually, that's probably an off the shelf solution to do that because what you're asking for is a common problem. So we can help you to do the research and find the best off-the-shelf product to do that particular thing. And the other one, I think, is kind of bespoke to them. It's actually super interesting, and I don't know. These are the kind of things that we get really jazzed about is when the client says, can it do this? And we're like, oh, hmm, I don't know. Good question. And jumping into ChatGBT and doing a quick prototype to go, Actually, I think it will because even just ChatGPT knows how to do that thing, but we've never tried it before, never heard of anyone trying that before. Like, that's cool. Can we, you know, give it a go? And the client will pay us to build a proof of concept, give it a go. I think it'll work and I think it'll be super interesting. That sounds really fun. What, what is, are you starting to see criteria with which you could evaluate these ideas or is it just tinkering and, and trying things out? Yeah, we've just finishing like. Literally, it's like wrapping up tomorrow a project where the scoring criteria was actually a really big part of the project. So the the project was build a proof of concept to prove or disprove the hypothesis around two experiments. And part A was actually running the experiments and seeing what the results were. But part B was building a, an experimentation and scoring pipeline so that we could uh, quantitatively to say, sort of see what whether you know one outcome was better than the other so we had a b a tests and b tests anecdotally we could see but it's actually quite tricky it's very tricky to do scoring at least in this use case it was so we built an automation tool that does the scoring so we run the results and through gpt4 for example or gpt3.5 or both, and then we can compare results and then we can have it run scoring and it will give us a scorecard for the A and the B. And basically that allowed us to answer the research questions qualitatively, not anecdotally. Right. And the, the research that you're doing, the experiments that you're doing, is that does it have to do with the capabilities of these generative AI tools? So is GPT-4 able to do something like this? Kind of. More specifically, in this case, it was this client has proprietary data and information, 
and we wanted to see whether you could do this. A user could come in and just use ChatGPT and do this themselves, and how good would the output be? Or can it, would the, the result be better if we enriched it using their proprietary data? So is their data any, is it, is it a pot of gold that they're sitting on that we can build or they can build an AI product with? Or mm. is GPT actually just already know it all? And that was the point of the experiment was to see, you know, how valuable is their proprietary data in the context of building a generative AI powered tool. Tim, when you, who are you generally dealing with? Or where are these requests? Where's the interest coming from in these businesses you're talking to? And then who are the team, both customer, client side and agency side, who are coming together to make these things? It's a really mixed bag. I mean, we're still pretty early. And so it's not like we have kind of critical mass and we can start seeing too many patterns. Sometimes we're hired by the CEO. Sometimes we're hired to, in the, the example that I just gave, we were the sponsor of the project is the chief product officer and he has uh, an agile or he has a, a number of agile teams and we were working as part of and collaboratively with one of their agile teams and we were bringing in the generative AI expertise and we did, you know, worked with them to build that thing that I just described. But the engineering example I gave earlier, we went and did that entire thing by ourselves. And the project sponsor is the, uh, I'm not sure which I think she's COO or general manager, but she basically runs the studio. And so she was the sponsor, but it was not a kind of a collaborative development effort. It was us build, getting the requirements and going away and building a prototype and then sort of setting it up within their systems. So it really has been different almost every time. We're doing a lot of work with marketing teams and customer experience teams to more on the education and training side. So teaching marketing departments how to use generative AI tools to make different tasks and their roles um, easier and more productive. So using image generation tools to create images or storyboarding or mood boards, um, for example, copywriting, idea generation research, things like that. So. The sweet spot for us is around marketing and customer experience, but not every project's kind of fitting directly into that. If we take marketing teams, your experience from going and talking to different marketing teams and they are shown and get an understanding of what these tools can do, how quickly do you think they are actually adopting these things into their workflow? And a follow-up question on that, if it's not being adopted as quickly as it could be, what, what are the things that are stopping them, do you think? So experimentation happened straight away and maybe even has been happening before we will go in. So people mucking around with ChatGPT, for example, we will put structure around that and teach them how to do better prompting, show them maybe some other tools that might be better for a particular thing. And so then they can embrace it and use that. Basically, as soon as we walk out of the room, hopefully they're you know, that using the things that we've just taught them. The thing that can slow it down to answer the second part of your question is the IT setup. And so, I mean, a good example is that particular client that I'm thinking of that we ran a big design workshop and training session for their marketing team. There's about 20 people in that session. They are getting the Microsoft, so basically chat GPT via Azure, their own private instance, which has only been rolled out like gradually by Microsoft. So they're going to get it really pretty early. I think they get it in a couple of months. 
that the IT department can put a break on the other people in the business using the tools because of concerns around data privacy, can, you know, training with the, their data, things like that. And they might say, look, let's just wait. Don't, don't, don't go and use ChatGPT until we have the full enterprise or business version. Other IT departments might be a bit looser, but certainly that can be, and for good reasons, you know, something that slows down adoption within the business of some of these tools. You mentioned their design workshops and your background is in design. Your previous business was a design agency. How do you see the role of designers in this work? Well, if we think of designers in the two different roles, like the design workshops are not design, design, graphic design, visual design, it's more service design, really, and a design thinking approach to uncovering use cases for the business. So, yeah, it's using a design process, but the output is not design. And so service designers would be, to be honest, probably way better than me doing that. Like either of you guys would do a better job than I would of running that workshop. We're very good subject matter experts and we're, we're fine at running workshops. We can, you know, we're okay. But good, you know, methodology in that approach. The, the goal of a design workshop in this context of what I'm describing is to uncover use cases for how that business or the marketing team might use generative AI tools in their day-to-day. And the outcome is, here's a long list of things and ideas, and these are the ones that are feasible to do now because the technology is kind of works well now. Like video generation is a no, like that's a not now, it's cool, but doesn't work very well right now. But image, some methods, some purposes of image generation work great now. And you go, yeah, cool, you can just go and do that straight away. Same with copywriting. You know, a lot of that can be done now. So the outcome of that workshop is a prioritized list of um, things that would be meaningfully useful for the business and also technically kind of feasible and practical to do now, as opposed to a designer, visual designer, graphic designer, where the answer would be different. You know, the, there's lots of tools that also in this generative AI space that a visual designer or a user experience designer might use for their design process. And some of those are things that are good now and some of them are things that like are probably not so good at the moment, like using an image generation tool to create final artwork at the moment is really, really hard because you just can't control and iterate on the outputs. It's uh, You put the words in, you get an output, and then if you want to try and iterate on it, it's, it's very challenging to do that, which is something that you kind of want to do as a designer is, I like it, but I want it to be a little bit different. That's not kind of how generative AI works. There are tools that kind of help with that, but it's a massive R&D area of improvement. You mentioned that you can build on the shoulder of giants, that there's no need to go and build things from scratch or for yourself. And actually something you shared, which we're going to link in the show notes, was an article by Menlo Ventures. And they had an article called The Seven Generative AI Building Blocks. They identify large language models like Anthropics Claude, image generation like DALI, video creation models, video indexing models, speech synthesis models, and speech comprehension models. And they also mentioned vector databases as a way of tying these models together to give personalization. But they call out these different building blocks and encourage companies that they can actually use these to go and build things, don't do things themselves. And you can use these things like a Lego to put together. Can you explain a little bit about your thinking and how that's been working practically for you? Yeah, as that article sort of describes, and I really agree with that article, 
it was funny. I, I was thinking about this myself and I was out running and thinking about this idea. And then I get home and I'm, I Google it and find that article. I'm like, oh, damn, that's exactly what I had in mind. But I don't have to write the article now because they did and they did a great job of it. If you, I mean, they described those building blocks, the ones that you just listed out. And if you think about like a large language model, which is the brain the, behind ChatGPT, we don't have to build a brain ourselves, OpenAI, so a company give us that brain and we can use that building block and build our own applications on top of it. And we can give it our own content. We can build our own user experience on top. There's, there's an API for it that we can then build whatever we like with. And then there's the example they give for image generation is DALI. Another one is, is stable diffusion, which is an open source image generation model. And anybody can download the source code, run it on their own you know, GPU and have another building block and you, then you can combine these things together in interesting ways. And that's kind of the magic of it is quite often the application or the user experience might only need one building block, but the more interesting ones are combining image generation with text generation and voice, whether it's voice in or voice out. And really the standing on the shoulders of giants, but is we don't have to train an AI model um, which is tens of millions of dollars in six months or 12 months of effort. Like we don't have to do that work. Lots of people have done that and we can choose the best modules and the best bricks and combine those to be, you know, in imaginative ways. And some of the examples that I gave of the applications that we've built for clients, it's exactly that. Like we're using large language models is by far the most common and using a large language model to do interesting stuff, but with it not, not having to build the large language model. How often do these tools, because it's cut wide umbrellas of, of capabilities that are outlined in this list of, of seven, how often do they get markedly better so that you have the possibility to rethink what you can do? Because the the reason why I'm asking that is because the development is so fast nowadays, but you're really actually doing things with it, which changes your perspective a little bit on that. Yeah, it's a good question. There's new things coming out all the time, but for a lot of use cases, especially with large language models, the old ones, it's fine. So we use GPT as sort of quite often, not always, but quite often for the language model. So GPT is the, the language model behind ChatGPT. And there's the most recent one is, is GPT-4, which is amazing, and it's way better than version 3.5. But 3.5 is actually just as good for most use cases, and the applications we've built, we can't really see you know much difference generally between the output from 3.5, which is still amazing. It's just that 4 is more amazing, but 3.5 is faster and cheaper, so mm. we'll, we can use that. Image generation is probably there's more potential there because we're not yet at amazing for every kind of style of image. Midjourney is pretty amazing, but there's no API, so we can't stand on the shoulders of that giant. Unfortunately, they've shrugged us off, but DALI 3 looks incredible, and there will be an API for that. So that will be a new building block that almost certainly everybody will go, yep, cool, let's go swap mm. out Stable Diffusion, and swap in the DALI 3. And because these building blocks are modular, you know, it's actually probably not that hard to do. If you've built an application, doing image generation to go, you know what, I want to swap out Stable Diffusion and swap in DALI 3. 
it's not like you have to rebuild the whole app. It's probably not that much work to do that. Right. So what you're saying there is that, is that general? Is that only for image generation? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming not, but that that's the case for many it's, of these that you can swap them out? It's probably more so... It, it depends on how hardcore you're going with customization of the model because with both language models and image models and, and video models, that video is kind of a not not there yet for production uses. You know, we haven't actually done any production uses of video because the, the, the quality is not kind mm. of as high as text or images. But you can fine-tune the model and for an image generation model, you can fine tune it to control the output to be in a style that you want, for example. So if, you, if you're just using the off-the-shelf model building block and not doing much with it, then maybe it's quite a simple use case, like just generate images from text, then it would be easy to swap out. But if you've gone down the route of um, fine tuning or in language models, there's this uh, vector embeddings kind of process, then you're getting a bit more locked into that particular AI model and you'd be throwing away a bit of work if you swapped it out. Hmm. That's a, a good example of something you need to think ahead that if a better uh, module comes out, you might want to swap in that at a, at a later point and to consider that in the architecture of what you're building. Are there any other um, considerations you'd urge people to think about if they're going to go down this building block approach? Definitely the architecture, as you said, is uh, an important one and also the which building blocks you're going to use. So we do normally in a proof of concept experiment with the different building blocks and go, you know, GPT 3.5 or 4 or should we use an open source model or should we use like Claude, for example. So there's all these alternatives. So doing a bit of experimentation to find out which is the best fit for your use case for now so there's yeah so you at least the architecture is right and picking the right modules in the first place and, and that's not that easy but it's it's not that hard but there's a bit of experimentation and knowledge that you need to be able to do that and then yeah it's probably back to the point that you made of future proofing it but not too much <laughs> you know you, you, you we can't predict what the future will hold and it's definitely one of the challenges of building in the space is there might be a new method that you know, somebody comes up with or there might be a new prompting technique which is probably not that hard to incorporate or there might be a new model so there's all the way sort of up and down the stack there could be something new that might make your job a bit easier or it make, might make the whole thing you built redundant that's also right. a, definitely a concern is and a consideration when clients brief us on a project is if we build this, do we think that someone else is just going to do, will Microsoft release this next week or will mm. Google just do something? And you, you kind of have line of sight of what the big companies like Microsoft and Google are planning because they'll announce them pretty early, but there could be some well-funded startup that comes out of the blue, has done exactly that thing. And you're like, oh, you know what? I wish we hadn't spent a month building that because you can just you know, right. subscribe to it now. I ask you to look a little bit into your crystal ball and anticipate how you see these generative AI AI building blocks being used in the near future and then say five, 10 years out, what do you see as the trajectory for this in terms of customer experience? So I would think if you 
If you did a graph, I'd take every building block, those seven building blocks, and lay them all down the bottom of the graph and then put a curve, you know, moving upwards in terms of how well they work. And they're all on different curves right now. So furthest along the curve, the maturity curve is, is code. Like code generation is amazing. Like 100%, oh, sorry, not literally 100% productivity improvement, but definitely 100% ready to be used right now and people get really good gains for code. Next on the list would be, the building block would be language models. There's definitely quite a lot of limitations and there are people spending PhDs researching and spending billions of dollars to try and remove those limitations, like hallucinations, for example. So that is already... For some use cases, it works great now, and others, it doesn't work right now, but that's maturing very, very quickly with basically unlimited money being and time and energy being spent on it because the gains are, are so huge. You know, you've got it's, yeah, Microsoft spending all of their money on making that work really, really well. Image generation would be next where it's on a different curve and on a different trajectory, but all of these blocks are moving towards perfect and they're on different, you know, but none of them are perfect right now. But, and it's hard for me to predict in the crystal ball how long until video generation gets to be perfect. But there's no reason it can't get to perfect. There's no, it's just time and energy and money. And all of those things are bountiful in the generative AI world because the, the, the value unlock is so huge that it's just going to get there. And it might be six months or it might be 12 months. But, I mean, video generation is probably further away than that, but there's no reason to think that typing some words of, you know, what you would like a video to be and generating a video from words won't be a real thing that works to a photographic or cinematic kind of quality for a short, like maybe like 20 or 30 second clip. I don't think that's two years away. I think that's one year away. Generating a Disney movie, like never, like I don't think that's on the horizon, but you know, so that's not what sort of what my definition of perfect would be. But yeah, it's a sort of a long answer. But I think the the crystal ball is there's no reason these won't get to be perfect, and then people will use them in ways that we can't imagine now. Probably by combining blocks together. Do you have any concerns about this? The impact on jobs, on potential ethical concerns. Yes, I do. Many, <laughs> many, many concerns. Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. Uh, I mean, in terms of jobs, there's a really good article if you're a, an AI enthusiast like I am, and I think you two are, uh, from Mark Andreessen. Have you read that article? Uh, don't have the name of it off the top of my head, but you can put it in the in the notes. And this is, I think it's about a month ago, and it's about jobs in particular and generative AI and AI assistance. You know, will that remove jobs or create jobs? And his, his, it's a long article; it's very thoughtful. And the the summary art, answer for that is he believes it's a net good and a net positive, and with greater you know unlocking productivity within workplaces and increases GDP, and with GDP growth creates jobs. In summary, you know, lots of people could pick holes in that, but Mark Andreessen's a very clever guy and it's pretty convincing if you read that article. On the ethical side, yeah, there's huge considerations and concerns, you know, some, some of which I'm like less fussed about and I think will work themselves out and some that are, are greater and no one really has the answer to yet. So for example, training 
is your content or your artwork being used in the training data and is that good or not good or fair or not that's a really tricky one to answer and this also is it legal or not and that's kind of going through the courts at the moment mm. in lots of different places and then there's the whole agi thing of yeah we're still maybe a decade away from that who knows but let's say it's it seems like it will be in our lifetime that computers will, will reach artificial general intelligence which most people listening to this will know what that means and well at least know what the words mean none of us know what it actually means if or when that comes about but i'm super nervous about that and i try not to think about it too much david tends to tease me about this i'm, I'm kind of bullish about the the at least the economic aspects i'm, I'm starting to get more nuanced when it comes to the the copyright parts of, of this i think it's it's so complicated and potentially disruptive seems to me though that the the con economic benefits the only thing that we can do is look backwards at, at other technological breakthroughs and and shifts that we've had and they have generally been very good for us in the longer run but the shorter perspective can be quite disruptive so i think that's uh, I, I like that answer that you gave there. I think it's it makes sense, and I'm looking forward to reading that article. Yeah, I just I found the article. I've just put it in the notes as well, so we can awesome. look to that. We interviewed someone from uh, Stanford Human Centered AI, a researcher Hi. there. Hi, and that kind of gave me um, chills down my spine when he was talking about his concerns, and he was saying we're now hearing about. AI as the, the salvation for everything. It's the salvation for lack of healthcare. It's the salvation for low productivity in economies. And I actually, after that, I was watching Bloomberg and exactly that happened. Some expert talking about, yeah, but you know, AI is going to be the thing that gives us greater productivity and solves all these things. I think so much is being hung on it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also don't sort of agree with that of being, yeah, it's going to solve all the problems. Yeah, I think we, we shouldn't be lazy just because we have AI. And then we maybe get into a situation where we rush. It's in, There's incentives in, say, healthcare to rush out services supported by AI because it ticks a box of providing a service, but maybe actually providing no service is less damaging than providing a, a not well thought out or a poor service. I worry a little bit that we're going to... Uh, I'm less concerned about that with healthcare because there's a lot of regulation around anything healthcare related. So generally speaking, things are very tested before being released in the wild in healthcare. So I think that's kind of reads me safe. If anything, I wouldn't be surprised if it's holding back you know, the pace of development. And there, there are probably tools that we don't have our hands on that or now or doctors don't have their hands on that really very good but maybe not yet perfect and not yet good enough to pass regulatory hurdles but could still be benefits to patient care and then if it's more close to home if you think about retail and uh, customer experience do you do you buy into the idea that we it's going to power a complete transformation in the sense of the there won't be really webs or websites or apps anymore that everything will be done through microservices and personal assistance how how do you see that playing out i'm on the fence about that and i feel like probably it's not an it's not an either or it's an and in the same way that i can shop 
on an e-commerce site on my computer. I can also do it on my phone or I can buy that product from Amazon. So I have at least three different user experiences that I can choose from for buying that product. There's probably for some things it's more than that. And conversational user experience or there's potentially another alternative to that. And then a, and using your assistant to do that for you in AI assistant is maybe another, you know, as well. And yeah, we'll see how that plays out. Like I'm, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I'm sure there have been retail user experience dead ends in the past where we're like, this is going to be how everyone's going to want to shop. And technically it's kind of possible and it's cool that no one actually does it actually i can think of an example so voice assistants using alexa for example or hmm. that was expected to be the future of shopping certainly uh, amazon would have had us believe that that was the future of shopping and no one does it right like no it just doesn't really work very well for whatever reasons and it might be that ai assistants are the same it might be that i'm it needs the the store to be compatible with my AI assistant or to be at least friendly with it, maybe if compatible is too strong a word. And if I buy, you know, I don't buy everything from Amazon. I buy from 10 different places, my coffee pods from this shop. And I ask my AI assistant to order me some coffee pods and it hits a technical wall where it like just can't complete the transaction on my behalf for whatever technical reason, because their store is not compatible with my bot. So I'm kind of expecting that will happen a lot. And then I'm like, well, this bot's dumb. Like I just tried it three times to go buy stuff mm. and it just hasn't worked. Stupid bot, you know, not understanding why it hasn't worked. But there are lots of reasons, mm. at least to start with. I think the first version of these anyway will probably not work very well. There's no reason Amazon couldn't build a really good one just for buying stuff on Amazon because they have control over, you know, all the way up and down. But to buy that's not all that useful really just buying stuff on amazon's very quick and easy anyway but having a research assistant that says i want to buy the new nike pegasus you know shoes running shoes and the the new ones of the 40s go and find me the best price and show you what colorways are available that would be super helpful but it requires my bot being compatible and friendly with five different stores and mm -hmm. those stores being playing nicely and allowing that bot to get the product information, get the pricing and allow me to complete a transaction and things like that. And yeah, it just seems like that's kind of a, probably a long way away. Interesting. Good. Yeah. yeah. That's a good, good reflection. When it comes to, to AI more broadly, are there capabilities that you're excited about experimenting with and doing, trying stuff out that isn't necessarily there now, but will probably be there soon? Yeah, there are two that come to mind. And one is, very much related to that last point about, you know, like a retail bot for an AI assistant is, is agents. So agents are a way to have an AI system do stuff for you on the internet, basically go away and complete a transaction or log in or do things. And this is, there are experiments with this and uh, demos that you can find online. It's very early, uh, but there's some pretty interesting stuff. And that would be the yeah if there was if they worked really really well that would be the thing that could i could set my ai agent assistant and say go and find that you know go and do this research and it wouldn't need the compatibility of the 
the e commerce, the five e commerce sites, it would just go and work it out in the same way that a user would at a browser site. It doesn't need like an API, it just goes browser site through a browser like a human, finds the product, scrapes the page, and brings it back, and then goes through and clicks the add to cart button, and then you know has my credit card details and completes the transaction. So that is an agent and it's developing pretty quickly and it's it, it's it's super complicated i don't really have my head around it at all and something that i'm interested for us to experiment with for sure and the second one that comes to mind is a little while ago released a product called code interpreter which is now renamed advanced data analysis and that's a bit of a closed box there's no api for it so you can't build that's not a building block you can't do anything with it except from within the chat gpt interface but there are a couple of open source projects that are basically, well, it's actually literally called Open Interpreter, and it's an open version of Code Interpreter that you can get the source code for and build into users of building block. Um, we haven't played around with that at all yet, and I'm interested to be for that to be another R&D project is get the source code and like, I don't even know, we haven't talked about it at, at all internally about what the use case for that might be, but what code interpreter or advanced data analysis lets you do is upload a CSV file and then interrogate the data, ask questions of the data, create charts, iterate on the charts and create graphics, create a PDF file, kind of stuff like that. And so if you guys have any ideas for you know, a use case or an R&D project for that or a kid's game would be ideal, then you know, let me know. Something I saw you go out to the community asking about was whether the people have come across different types of chat interfaces. You identified that virtually all interfaces you see are the little text box that people type into. And you went out to the community asking for inspiration about different types of interfaces. What was your findings from that? The findings were underwhelming. I was hoping for more, but I, I, got, a, I got back a lot of chat box. The the closest thing to what I kind of was hoping to see was the Shopify have a demo site, which is a conversational shopping experience. And it's got a, I mean, it is, it, it has a chat window down the right-hand side. And then in the left-hand side, it will pull back results from across a whole lot. I don't know how many stores they've kind of opted in for this, but it, it's like cross-site Shopify store shopping with a conversational user experience and it doesn't work. It's a demo. And so, you know, maybe it doesn't need to work that well, but it's a little, the results are not great, but it's as a future vision for a shopping experience. I thought it was really cool. But generally you're saying that everyone is tending to use this same interface. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a window where you type words in and then there's a response, but the response doesn't always need to be words. So it doesn't need to be like a chat. It can be like the Shopify example where it's the result is uh, product tiles. Mm. Yeah, I hope that there's people doing more interesting things and that, you know, and I hope actually we'll be some of those people ourselves is uh, doing some more experimental work around future of interface. Mm. And I definitely think, you know, voice will have a big part to play with that. 
is especially for mobile kind of use cases or when you're on the go is have you ever tried to buy something when you're driving your car i hope the answer is no because <laughs> you should not do that but i often think about things i might want to buy in the car but it's just like i'll wait till i get home that's, that's sort of thing one of the 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 cases where i think a chat chat interface could be really interesting for me it's kind of a specific use case but like just outlining cost episodes for me is is one of those things that i do very well and and, i mean many people can relate when you go for a run or you go for a walk in the forest and you just want to have ideas be taken down i think that's for me is one of those places where i really see chat being very useful to me because like i i do this already i pick up my phone and i use the dictaphone to sort of enter a, a huge chunk of text into the to, to my cell phone and then I have to spend some time cleaning that and maybe using chat GPT just to, to, to structure it. And it's kind of a process. And I think that for me is one of those, like the, the, the helper to think is, is what excites me. And I think that can be quite close because it's not so very far off what, from what I already do. And I think that's one thing that I'm, I'm sort of looking for. I haven't found any, any, versions of that yet maybe that's you have to build that's a thing i'm I'm thinking also let's put a challenge out to our listeners if you have any ideas on on things that can be done in a in a good way based on the conversation we've had please reach out to us or or to tim and then we can transfer those ideas to to you and see if if any of those are interesting for you to to sort of use as a a test case that would be fun. And on that, Tim, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to get in touch with you or Time Under Tension? How can they find you? People can find me on LinkedIn. It's probably a good place to find me. And if you're interested in learning more about generative AI, just you know, give me a follow. And I pretty much uh, once or twice a week will post the most interesting things that I've found and with a bit of context around it, normally through a customer experience design marketing lens. And... Yeah, that's probably also the best way if you wanted to get in touch with me, just connect with me on LinkedIn and um, drop me a note. And Time Under Tension website is timeundertension.ai. Thank you so much for listening to Designing the Robot Revolution. My name is Jacob Magnol, and with me as always, David Griffith-Jones. Have a wonderful day.